This is Sabelle Martin, and you're listening to Cinepod, the cinematography podcast. The following podcast contains explicit language. You're listening to the Cinematography Podcast presented by Hot Rod Cameras, a program about the art, craft, and philosophy of the moving image and the people who make it happen. Coming to you from the world headquarters of Hot Rod Cameras in Hollywood, California, are your hosts, Ben Rock and Ilya Friedman. Hey, Ilya. Hey, Ben. How are you? I'm doing uh, delightfully. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm, I'm delightfully as well. <laughs> hey, Ben, uh, who's on the show today? We have an amazing cinematographer, Sibel Martin, who most recently shot three of the eight episodes of the new Amazon Prime series, A League of Their Own. But also, she's a big horror fan, so uh, she and I had a lot to talk about. <laughs> she shot a really cool horror movie called Black as Night that I will heartily recommend to anyone who wants to check it out. Also on Amazon Prime. Nice. And she's got some sci-fi stuff coming up, and uh, she's just, uh, she's a wonderful person. She loves her work. I'm sometimes reminded in the bitterness that I swim in that uh, this job is supposed to be fun, and sometimes we talk to people like Sibel or uh, Seamus McGarvey who remind me that this can be a blast. Like, this should be fun. It should be a big, creative, fun experience where you get to do really cool stuff. So uh, she's already doing really big things. I expect to see only bigger and bigger things out of Sibel Martin over the next few years. Like she's she's kind of blowing up right now. Yeah. All right. Well, hey, what are we talking about for close focus today? Man, it's kind of an Armageddon over at HBO Max with the the merger of Warner Brothers, the entire Warner Brothers library and Discovery. Oh, my God. They're just taking stuff off the platform. Yeah, they really are. <laughs> it's it's kind of nuts. And it seems like a random hodgepodge of stuff, too. It's like yeah, a lot of it's their own original content, and they didn't really give a really clear reason as to why they were just doing some rejiggering of stuff or something. And like one of them was the Hervé Villachez movie starring Peter Dinklage that came out like maybe last year or the year before. It's relatively recent stuff, some of it. And then some of its legacy stuff, and I mean, it's on, and I know we talked about this last week, the literal canceling of the Batgirl movie after it was made and they spent $90 million on it. It's kind of a head scratcher. Yeah. And kid stuff and family stuff. Infinity Train, I, I, I watched some of that animated series and I quite enjoyed it. I mean, it's really sort of, all I can guess is they're going to spin off to some sort of like kids channel or something. I, I don't know. But to remove it from HBO before you actually even have that. I, I mean, to me, all those people who might have been in the middle of watching some of these series, <laughs> I, I, mean, I don't care if it's Ellen's next great designer or uh, Close Enough. And Close Enough is brilliant, by the way. I loved Close Enough. And I didn't finish the last season. So the fact that that's gone now is going to be really <laughs> disappointing to me. Camping, which which is also a pretty Camping, recent yeah. series, just take just gone. And the thing is that uh, I don't believe. Maybe I'm wrong about this. Uh, someone can correct me if I'm wrong. I don't believe any of these exist on Blu-ray or DVD or can be really acquired anywhere else. HBO Max was it. Just today, they announced they're also canceling a Matt Reeves run Batman animated series. It's a little baffling. And if I may editorialize. The fact that it's being acquired by Discovery and the fact that, yes, a lot of people watch Game of Thrones, for instance, but also a lot of people watch reality television and Discovery 
networks are better known for reality television than they are for narrative fiction kind of content. I'm a little terrified that we're going to just start seeing a ramping down of HBO style premium movies, TV series and stuff like that. And just see more, if I do say so, uh, uh, goofy reality shows that I would never watch. To me, it just seems like an obvious money grab. It it feels to me like they're spinning off. They're taking some content so they can sell it to you elsewhere. And it's one thing, like I understand when Netflix is licensing uh, like content from stars or they're licensing content from some other platform from somewhere else. They're putting it on their channel. And at some point that license expires and there's usually like a big, you know, hey, this is going away. You're going to want to watch this. It's going away on the at this time. And I understand that they're removing that. But when they create their own original intellectual property and then choose not to put it on their own platform, as HBO is doing right now, that means that even though you were paying that monthly subscription fee, you no longer have access to the stuff you thought you had access to. And in a world where people are increasingly not owning the media that they have access to, they're just, you know, uh, leasing it or renting it for uh, a day or two or having these subscription services. You kind of anticipate that some of that stuff is going to be there for you, especially when you're getting it from the people who created it in the first place. And then when it's gone, it's kind of like the rug being yanked out from under you. It's, It's really a, you know unsettling and if they had a plan to spin it off and charge more money they kind of should have done that a while ago but i guess it's still the early days so so who knows what will happen who knows how many ways they will bifurcate hbo max discovery and who and whatever the next channel that, that they do to try to get more uh you know revenue from their subscribers yeah and i know we're never uh i shouldn't say never it's just unlikely that we go back to a packaged media kind of a world with a DVD. I, I saw an interesting clip that was kind of floating around on Twitter of Matt Damon being interviewed about, you know, why aren't these movies being made? The kinds of stuff that, you know, that he really cut his teeth on in the nineties mostly. And he talked about, you know, the difference in the uh, streaming market versus the DVD or, or the packaged media market where you'd go to a bookstore, you'd go to Best Buy, you'd go to Target or whatever, and you would buy these DVDs. They had huge rows and rows upon rows of DVDs, and it was an enormous profit center. A lot of times a movie would be released theatrically, almost just so people would know about it when it was released on DVD and, and to increase DVD sales. And in the world that we're in now, you don't get that you sort of get like a collective uh if i may uh shit pile of stuff on every streaming service i'm not saying that the projects are shit i'm saying that like nothing is given special attention or or curation yeah like the sense of curation is that the fact that hbo made it, it it got curated and hbo i think is better at pushing their stuff than say netflix netflix i mean they all make good stuff and then they all acquire good stuff but like outside of niche services like Shutter, which I, I know I talk about a lot, but I feel like a lot of the services could take a lesson from Shutter, which is curated by people who love the movies that they're curating. So it wouldn't make any difference if it was horror like Shutter or sci-fi or romantic comedies or straight up comedies. Like if there was a streaming comedy network that curated really amazing comedy stuff, you know, that was both legacy stuff and new stuff. I feel like people who were fans of that genre would flock to it. But I feel like what's happening is these mega streamers are trying to be everything to everyone. I would say, except for Disney Plus, who just seems to really know their audience unbelievably well. 
but like Prime and HBO Max and Netflix especially are just trying to be everything to everyone. But this purge, I mean, there's no other way to describe it. It's just a purge of quality premium content. Like, again, you you should expect to see, you know, that Peter Dinklage film just on HBO's streaming service for eternity. They spent a lot of money making it and it's just gone. I, I don't know. Maybe it'll maybe it'll get repurposed to another streaming service, maybe a competitor. I, I, I'm not sure what's going to happen. We'll certainly find out. I mean, I, I, I feel like I feel like Warner has like a weird history, though, of being like becoming part of AOL, then becoming part of AT&T. Like, I feel like they're just getting passed around. And so they end up with kind of the stank of whatever corporation they're a part of. And Discovery Networks is obviously an, an enormous juggernaut of a, of a company. But it's just crazy to me that they would bother to merge with them and then just be like, eh, shelve movies and get rid of series. And I feel like we're only at the beginning. We're going to see all kinds of stuff getting canceled and not picked up off of uh, HBO Max. I don't mean to beg to differ, but let's not forget that a lot of studios have had different ownership for periods of time. Like Sony was a Coca-Cola company for a long time and uh, Universal was a division of Seagram's. You know, it's like there's a lot of uh, and before then, even earlier, they they were Panasonic for a little while. It's like, you know, it's a it's a very interesting history of some of these these places and how different companies decide they're going to come into Hollywood and, you know, shake things up. And then inevitably it, it doesn't necessarily work out the way they thought. And then it becomes a yeah. you know, somebody else's. No, no, you're, you're right. Actually, that gives me a little bit of comfort. Thank you for bringing that up. Sure. All right. Hey, let's get to the interview with Sibel Martin. All right. The Cinematography Podcast Interview. So we are here today, actually in Los Angeles, which is a rarity these days. We're usually talking to somebody in, you know, wherever, Australia. Uh, But in Los Angeles, we're talking to Sabelle Martin. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Sabelle. Thank you for having me. This is a treat. I watched your feature, uh, which we'll talk about a little bit first, because I'm a giant horror nerd. Uh, I watched your feature, Black as Night. Awesome. Uh, and really enjoyed it. An amazing horror film with kind of an angle that we hadn't seen before. I was curious while watching it, like, what were the influences? I felt a strong influence of Attack the Block. But I wanted to know, like, from you, what were the things that were kind of going through your head? And, you know, kind of give me the pitch of the movie, if you could. The pitch of the movie. Uh, both, well, so the director and I loved working together. We both devour horror movies. I love horror movies. Like horror movies are like my comfort food. Like if I'm really stressed out, I just need to watch a horror movie and it just like brings everything down. It's like good. What's your favorite? What's your favorite? Oh God. I mean, just off the top. I mean, Carrie and then The Shining, Mm. those two I could watch monthly and just be filled with so much joy. Um, (laughs) They make me, I mean, I love 70s horror. I love like things that happen during the daytime. There's just something really great about 70s horror. The sort of they're almost shot romantically, and then they're also just, just like this chaos and carnage. But I'll, I'll watch any horror movie, quite honestly. Mm. Uh, but so for Blackest Night, both Marty, the director, and I were lovers of 30 Days of Night. And so that was a big reference. We were also, because the even though it's a horror movie, we wanted still to plant the story in some sort of, not realism, but some sort of reality. So I know we both looked at the movie Girlhood. Um, we wanted like the New Orleans daytime stuff just to feel rich and beautiful and just really lean into all the characteristics of New Orleans and just in terms of color and texture so that when we get to the nighttime stuff, then you really feel the inky blacks, you really feel the doom. But 30 Days of Night definitely was like a big one for us. 
You kind of went into it a little bit, mm-hmm. but it's a movie that takes place in New Orleans in which our protagonist is bitten by a vampire that's like uh, a homeless person, basically. And uh, I, I thought it was an interesting take on the vampire genre to kind of, you know, we're so used to seeing, uh, especially in in uh, New Orleans, we're used to seeing Lestat. We're used to seeing like regality with vampires. But in this yeah. case, it was it was, you know, Almost homeless vampires. people. Yeah. Yeah. Which is a really unique take. I've never seen that I- idea. We're used to seeing our vampires as like right. rich, uh, aristocratic people. But, uh, you know, you're talking a little bit about creating a, a visual dichotomy between the daytime and the nighttime stuff and the daytime stuff feels kind of naturalistic in in a way like featuring the beauty of New Orleans and the you right. know the interesting architecture and all that stuff right. and then the night stuff is like very colorful and very very different Fun. yeah 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 <laughs> so when you're doing something with that kind of a dichotomy where did you come up with the ideas of what colors to use what was the palette you, you were talking about like the inky blacks cuz yeah i mean it's like it goes super dark in the frame stuff like that what were you thinking about as you were constructing the the plan Like a lot of times when I'm trying to feel what the visuals are, like I just get inspired. I'm inspired just what's naturally there and what colors are just speaking to me naturally. Like if this story had taken place in a different city, other colors are just naturally going to start speaking to me. And I think just on a a subconscious level, New Orleans just has its own colors. For sure. For sure. I know this is how I function, but I don't usually articulate it. Something in me will just go, oh, indigo. And I'm not even really thinking about why indigo, but as we're talking, it's like, well, yeah, I mean, New Orleans, you know, key colors are purple, green, and gold. And yeah. on some level, those were really important colors for me. Did it ever show up in a lookbook? I don't know. But that sort of, that will influence me. And then also, like cinematography, I mean, you know, because you've, you've interviewed all of us, there's trends. And mm. I just don't want to do the same color palette that I'm seeing other people do. You know, it's it usually starts because one person did it and everyone's like, oh, my God, that's amazing. I mean, like I, like back in film school, we saw seven, you know, everyone tried to shoot everything like seven or, you know, yeah, you, yeah. you just get inspired. But and that's cool. But at this stage of the game, I really just try to find something that I feel is unique for the project. But I knew that the like it just felt correct that the whole film just have a lot of color and lots of richness, which is just inherent in New Orleans. Again, if this was shot. You know, like in San Francisco, it would be different. There's a shot in Portland, Mm. it would be different. But New Orleans is so much about richness and color and texture and certainly got a lot of that just from the locations that we were shooting in. They just exuded that and just you had to lean into it, especially on like a lower budget film. The best way to get production value is to lean into what's there. And you can't really mess up. You still in New Orleans. <laughs> I know it's just gorgeous. You're just gonna get stuck in rain. That's really the you know. yeah. Oh God, yeah. We had a lot of that. Lots of like in lightning delays and stuff. So beautiful film. Uh, this is a sidebar conversation you and I can have. But I feel like a lot of times I get this belief from people that horror is a debased genre or whatever and it's like you watch the texas chainsaw massacre that movie is gorgeous it, it is, is beautiful it and is it, and and it is a, it's a classic for a reason yeah we could do a whole podcast talking about cinematography of horror movies I oh my god and i want to about it like are you kidding like some of the best cinematography ever been done in well, horror movies Ilya, my co-host he is not the horror fan that i am and uh, it's not that he's against it He'll watch a horror movie, but like I'm always talking about how I feel like some of the best work is done in that genre. Yes. I think very rarely do they get their due. Yeah. What is it as a fan, but also as a DP that drives you to horror? I feel like some of the most interesting stuff 
ever take any moment in film history some of the most interesting stuff is being done in horror or science fiction and horror is where i would go but like what is it that that kind of keeps you energized about the genre okay let me see if i can put this into words because this is definitely something where i'll i'll spiral out of control with so much enthusiasm let me gather all my thoughts so i love horror in terms of all the genres it's one of the best ones to deal with just basic human stories strangely enough like my favorite horror movies if you were to take the supernatural out of it it's still a solid movie you Mm -hmm. still have character development and anguish and all the plot points i mean you talk about carrie you take the supernatural out of carrie it is still about a teenage girl who's been in a protective household who's socially awkward and doesn't know how to be in this world doesn't she's smart but not you know now she's a gift it wouldn't have to be supernatural it could just be that she's smart it could just that suddenly she's good at football whatever but then using the supernatural then you get to heighten it and you get to really underscore emotions in a much more powerful way that you couldn't in a drama because a drama has to adhere to reality and so then when it comes to the cinematography of horror it's in my opinion the best genre And I'm like scanning my head to make sure I still feel this is true. I feel like horror is the best genre for cinematographers to try out a visual that is not based in reality. Like I did a short stint doing music videos, did not last. That is a hard world. But I envy my friends who did stay in shooting music videos because it's just anything goes visually. Anything goes. There is no reality. It's just visual. It's just visual. Um, sort of commercial world, but they still will try to often still have some sort of narrative. But then in the horror genre, the second you establish the rules of the film, meaning like, like I love, I, I'm really passionate about the opening scene of any feature film. It's like, that's when you set up what's reality, what's normal. And in a horror movie, like if all the walls are red and then the first scene, all the walls are red, okay, then that's just what it is. It's not a big deal. If everyone's skin is green, and that's just it. Okay, fine. Like, yeah, and yeah. Then, so once you establish like what the visual rules are, you know, first scene, boom, there you go. Then that's what's real. And you get to do that in horror movies. You get to just create a, like you are not adherent to a reference to what a time period really looked like. There are no rules visually. Um, yeah, when, and, you, when you were saying that, I was thinking about the opening sequence in Dario Argento's Suspiria. Oh, where where he establishes just this wackadoodle lighting so plot, good, yeah. like the lighting is just so funky and weird in that movie. All of this stuff, yeah. But then you you just accept it though, like you just kind of roll with it, exactly. And, and it's it's so cool, exactly. And that's exactly it. It's like being a filmmaker is like it's like recreating like dreams almost. It's like you're just so you're always dealing with like representation of things, like especially in horror movies. A house can represent where someone lives, but it can also represent like their inner world. And you can just really dig into all these things of what things mean. Like a tree in a horror movie could just mean more than just a tree. And then for yeah. someone like myself who wants to overthink every single choice, it is so <laughs> much fun. Like I can do an hour being like, well, what does the tree here mean? I mean, like the conjuring. You know, in the tree, it's just like, oh my God. Or that's another the conjuring, sinister. That's what I was thinking of. Because I just rewatched it and love sinister. And so that's why I love horror movies, certainly to shoot them, is that you just start from scratch. It's like, what is this world? How do you see this world? And if it's a good script, 
you have a sense of what that world is. Like you naturally feel it like, oh, yeah. it's really yellow and it's an acidy yellow. It's not a canary yellow or it's, you know, it's very desaturated, but purple pops because of this or red pops because of blood or, you know, in these scenes we're seeing through the monster's eyes. So it's going to get, you know, it's going to be grainy or it's going to be like whatever it is that you're making up. And uh, like people know, I love to always refer to Creole can, um, crayons. So it's like you're working with a full box of 64. Like you just have all <laughs> these tools at your disposal. You are not hemmed into any visual rule. And just what a treat. Like what fun. That's why I love horror movies. That's awesome. <laughs> so A League of Their Own, which uh, just dropped uh, as we're recording this, I don't know, a week or two? Was, last week, within Friday. The last, yeah. So August 12th. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And congratulations. Thank so you. Uh, you you shot out of the eight episodes, didn't you shoot, I think, four of them, right? No, no, I shot three of them. Three of them. And so first hacky question, but like <laughs> what brought you to that project? How did you end up on that project? Oh, boy, how did I end up on that project? Um, I think Delmar recommended me. She was already on the project and recommended me as the alternating DP. And then the usual course went through my agent. And my agent was really enthusiastic about this. Um, and I, my agent has really good taste. So I listened to her. Like my mindset about work is on one level and my agent, adore her, always has a much broader view of the industry and where I can go. And I've noticed over time that I have a more limited concept of what my next step will be. And she's like, mm. no, 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 this is what we're doing. And so I just learned to trust my agent a lot and she loved A League of Their Own. She thought it was a great opportunity for me. And I saw the pilot and I was like, I don't know, you know, and, but it was like, I would just done American Horror Stories. Mm. Horror movies are my comfort zone. So a part of me would be like, just thrilled just to do horror movies for the rest of my life. Noted. But it was like, but I need to <laughs> diversify. I need to, you know, I mean, like you don't just shoot things that you enjoy. You want to, you want to like protect your, your future career. So, mm -hmm. you know, like, it's not like you just keep shooting and that you'll always have these opportunities to do a 1940s large budget period piece, you know, on sports and women and like multiple, yeah. like, I mean, all the stuff that came in a league of their own. I can't take that for granted. And I can't assume that that kind of opportunity will show up all the time. Like, oh yeah, it's a, you know, I had never done a period piece. And so there were so many things in there that were really beneficial for me for like stuff I'd like to do in the future and people I'd like to work with. And so it was the, the pilot. I was like, oh, the pilot's cute, but it was reading the future scripts. And it's like when you, like, I, I'm sure all DPs are like this, or I don't know, I am anyway. Like, I read scripts, and it's always greedy. Like, you go through a script, and you're like, okay, dialogue, dialogue, <laughs> dialogue. Mm -hmm, okay, yuck, yeah, yuck, yuck. Oh, and it, okay. Oh, but there's a scene <laughs> shot, and, and you get you start getting, your mouth is watering, your DP mouth is watering. You're like, oh, my God. Like, so one of my greatest passions in life are speakeasies and house parties. Yeah, I just love speakeasies. I've watched any movie, any TV show that remotely re relates has a speakeasy scene in it. I've probably seen them. I'm fascinated by that culture, the idea, you know, even the modern day versions where everything is legal, but we still, you know, still have to go through a kitchen and down a dark alleyway and, and make a hard left and like look for a light bulb. I love that. 
Uh, so when I got to the episode with the speakeasies and the house party, and I my my DP brain was like, oh my god, this could be really fun, you know? Like this is really, I mean, yeah, there's dialogue, but it's like, oh, but all the things I get to shoot and the things I get to light, and there's a movie scene, and so that's what gets you is that, mm-hmm. um, and I'm learning. It's this constant maturity in your career is that you can do something because in the moment it sounds fun. But you have to have a broader perspective. Like, is it going to be fun now? Does it represent the kind of work you want to have your name attached to? Does it make a difference in the general public? I mean, I've just, I've grown broader. Also, as I start to realize that I'm being offered more, uh, sounds sort of like counter to what I was saying earlier, but with more opportunities and you can kind of sift through and say, where do I want to align myself and where do I want to throw my talents and a league of their own just checked off a lot of boxes. I love sports. Everyone, I think, wants to shoot their own Rocky. So, I mean, but I, I love sports. I mm. love women in sports. I love watching female athletes, how their body language is extremely different than anyone else, like just how they stand. Like just And, and so I just got very excited about the prospect of translating that onto a screen. And again, the period piece, because I had not shot a TV series that was a period piece. And so that was a huge opportunity. And then the, the dual stories and the peaches in Max's world was very exciting to me. And it just, it just offered a lot of things that I've never shot before. And they also just dovetail with things that interest me. And I do a lot of photography and I'm also a painter. And so a lot of the themes in the show, they dovetail with my own personal work. And so I saw it as sort of like a continuation or a nice blending of my DP career and then painting and photography. And you just don't get that a lot. Um, Not that I'm looking for it, but you just don't get that a lot. So I was really grateful for that, that I could bring my own aesthetic naturally to it versus as you get a job and you feel like you're sort of pushing or you're trying not to push your aesthetic on something. You're trying not to push what you feel is right. And it's like a balancing act. So anyway, long story, long still, but that's how I ended up on League. It's all great. (laughs) Well, it's interesting to hear kind of about the touch points for you that made it an interesting choice. And, you know, I mean, anyone, you know, kind of in your position where it's like you're on the radar and you're doing a lot of stuff that people are excited about. Like, I can imagine that you do get a lot of opportunities. So it's interesting to kind of hear how uh, how that all came together. And as someone who is old enough to have seen the original movie, A League of Their Own in the theater, uh, directed by Penny Marshall, shot by I hope I don't butcher his name. I I literally had a. the Amadeus poster on my wall for years. And so I was, I, so I've read his name a million times. Miroslav Andrejkic, Andrejcik. I'm going to say Miroslav Andrejcik. Uh, he shot Amadeus, which is, you which know, is one, brilliant. Of the, one of the greatest movies ever made. Yeah. Of all and, time. Uh, yeah. But, you know, Penny Marshall, no slouch and a league of their own, a classic movie. Was there any reference to that with this? Cause I mean, I, I have seen it. I've, I saw it in the theater. I actually worked in a movie theater when it came out. So I'd, I'd seen it a bunch of times and I feel like it's got, you know, obviously you're using modern technology, but was there any reference to the approach or the look that Miroslav got back then? Um, Holy crap. For my episode. 30 years ago. Yeah. Years. Ouch. You can delete that art. All numbers oh like that. We can remove from this conversation. Oh. I would say respectfully, no, it wasn't. I mean, there was never a conversation with Delmar or with our showrunners about replicating the movie. If you've seen the series, there's a lot that, you know, does a hat tip to the movie out of respect and adoration. 
And though our reference material was a lot of research, like one of the, one of the greatest things that I've been experiencing of doing certainly television is all the researchers that you mm-hmm. work with. Oh, and yeah. so we just got a lot of material about an actual night game that occurred, a baseball game that occurred, or, you know, about the Negro League, about the, um, you know, women's baseball. We, we got all this research and all of this reference material and the initial stories were the inspiration for me the real people and the real, like what photography was looking like at the time, which is always where I go to. It's like, I don't always want to repeat it, but I always research what did film or television or paintings or whatever, what did art look like at the time that we're shooting? So went back a lot to that and try to mix it up and look at some stuff that's a little more contemporary. We had a lot of conversations also about representing the time, but also we never wanted to feel oldie timey, like we never wanted to do like a sepia tone wash and mm. like a soft, you know, like a vignette and it like softly goes to white and, and fades in and out. Like we wanted the audience to feel like the story was happening right now. And so for that, if we were to go anything that harked back to oldie timey, whether it be referring to the original movie or exclusively to photography of that time, I don't know. It's just sort of playing it easy. And it's sort of, yeah. it's not a phoning it in because that would still be a challenge, but it is kind of a phoning it in of like what your creative input is. But instead to say, how do we find that fine line between recognizing it's the 1940s and still making it feel like if our audience was that our audience is there right now watching this unfold. So, I mean, we did things like playing with shutter angles and we did things like adding color palette that may not have been the colors of that time, but it mm. felt, it just felt right. And just sort of went with your instinct of this is how it might've felt then. Maybe not how it looked or how it would have photographed, but this is how it would have felt then. Um, we definitely use a lot more color than is in the movie. It's much more expressionistic. It's much more, um, I mean, like Wong Kar Wai was a big reference. Oh, Pretty nice. much everyone and their mother will try to sneak in in the movie for love as a reference that they can. We're all well, dying to shoot an, that movie. <laughs> it's like the best, one of the best looking movies ever made. Of all time. From now on, just start every interview with like, and so what do you think about in the movie for love? And then you go on like, and what's your name and whatever. Yeah. Like, just start with ne- it. They're like, never saw it. I'm like, well, we're not going to record. Yeah, seriously. I don't, I don't know the this point. This is over. I don't know the point. Um, so that means, Sorry. So Sorry. Had- I know you won the Oscar, but off. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> totally. It's not enough. It really isn't enough. Um, so our office are, are and, and by the way, like offices are not for DPs. DPs shouldn't be in offices. Uh, but our production office was just plastered with all the reference material. And so there was a lot, again, from the actual stories of the women playing then and the Negro League. There's a lot of, of those. The research were in our office. And then a lot of pictures from In the Mood for Love. And then like some um, Gordon Parks photography. Uh, and just like really like we would just be pulling anything that felt right, that either felt emotional or felt athletic or like the, the sense of community or like all these words that we were trying to like gather and get represented visually. So, yeah. So In the Mood for Love was a reference and the use of color and how the color shows up in the cinematography and the lighting and in the production design and in the costume, how they all work so beautifully together. 
and that was our goal. I can't speak for the costume designer, the production designer, but certainly for me, I was always looking for like, if they were dressed in one way, how does my lighting complement that? Or how does it work with that? And this, you know, the different locations and it, it, and it evolved. I, I mean, I have a, a wacky question that I should probably know the answer to and I don't. Uh-oh. But when you're no, when you're on a show like this and you're going back to the same location, you know, like episode uh, four, I think, is your first episode. Correct. But does that mean that you shot every frame in that episode from the beginning to the end? Or if there was a scene in one of the locations, like let's say they needed to do a pickup later, or they, re- they rewrote the script to accommodate something as a team of DPs on the on the show. I mean, I, I'm not talking about like second unit stuff, but I'm talking about like a first unit scene do you ever pick one up for each other or is it all just like you shoot episode you know 104 from beginning to end and that's and that's all you yeah i understand um on some shows we've had it where one dp has a scene in a location the other dp has another scene in that same location and those are the only scenes in that location one dp might just do boom boom for efficiency's yeah. sake um, so i've definitely had that experience on league we shot only our own stuff I, we mm-hmm. didn't even shoot second unit for each other. And I like the purity of that. I mean, going to the second unit thing is that when you shoot second unit or you pick up someone else's, you know, a piece, a scene from their episode, you've not been living in it. It ignores all the prep and thought and the philosophy and the approach that went into it. And if you have to shoot someone else's scene, it's probably just for efficiency sake. It's probably to save the producers and the AD. It's not because someone doesn't want to do it. So you just have to go in and go, well, I don't know what they meant to do. I'll just try to honor what they have been doing. And you'll ask the operators and the DIT to show you reference material thematically how their their episode is progressing. But ideally, I would just rather do all my stuff and they do all their stuff. And a little second unit is fine. But yeah, I just like the purity. Yeah, I mean, obviously picking up like an an insert shot of somebody signing a piece of paper or something like that. Yeah you know, less of a concern than like, here's a whole scene with, right. you know, with, with main characters doing something in the middle of the episode. Right. And I've had, and I've done that also. Yeah. I don't, I've totally done that, but not on a league of their own. You brought up earlier that you love the speakeasy, you know, like the look of a speakeasy. What is, I mean, like, what is it that you love about the look of a speakeasy? Um, what I love about speakeasies, I mean, what I've read about speakeasies and what I, I really gravitate towards when they're portrayed in movies and whatnot is that they're very intimate. They're very they're intimate and they're bold. And there's an authenticity to people there that is not shared in the in the public, regardless of what decade they happen. And so it's that combination that I love. And it, there's something very naughty about them, you know, from mm-hmm. how you get there through the alleyway and all that to the drink that you order and what you wear and who else is there. And sometimes you have like a special name. So it's just, it's fun from a modern day perspective. And also I just have admiration, if you will, for certainly the characters in our show, because it was seen as subversive at the time, but for them, it was a place of community. So I just love that about speakeasies or house parties for Max's story. Someone who was black and queer could not just go to a bar, like any bar, I'm sure. Mm -hmm. Um, So the same kind of intimate environment being your authentic self would have to exist in a house party back in the 1940s. But then also in that authenticity, you get to be loud and nonconformist, uh, which just brings all sorts of great visuals. They're like all the movies for like men wearing hats or like feathers and boas. And it's just, 
you know, a visual like extravaganza. It probably comes from me reading Great Gatsby when I was a kid and and just being <laughs> like just in awe, of, like, you know, jazz age visuals and all the art that came out around then, like lots of gold and feathers and outrageousness and drinks yeah. and however it's portrayed, it just seems really sexy and alive. And it's fun. kind of it's kind of weird. Like the more repressive society is, like the more vibrant the you know, counterculture scene? becomes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, just the counter, whatever the counterculture is, yeah. you know, like, you know, I mean, even if you just think about like speakeasies themselves, I don't know the actual origin, but I'm assuming it has something to do with prohibition right. and creating kind of like a, a secret underground world. And then that allows other people who have been forced underground for whatever reason, like being LGBT or whatever, to seek that out. Um, how did you go about shooting the speakeasy stuff that you did for a League of Their Own? Um, so the speakeasy scene there's two main scenes there. They're pretty large. And we shot, we only had a day and a half to shoot those two very large scenes. You shot all that in a day and a half? Thank you. Yes. I um, can't believe you shot all that in a day and a half. That's insane. <laughs> <laughs> There's so much. Oh my God. Yeah. Someone, someone brought up the other day about TV schedules being luxurious. And I laughed because most episodes are eight or nine day episodes. So there's nothing luxurious about television. At least I'm it's, not. I'm not <laughs> elevated to that level of like five months. I mean, I'm sure like Game of Thrones, like five months per episode, twenty months per episode. But I think it's luxurious if you uh, grew up making the A team or something. It's like, oh, you got eight days. That's twice <laughs> as much as we had. A team. I love that you went to A team. <laughs> Your references are awesome. Um, so, so we had a day and a half to do these two scenes plus, uh, spoiler, 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 the raid on the speakeasy. So this involved- I know, that's- Most that of the That is not an uncomplicated sequence. Yeah. How many involved, pages was that though? I mean, it's not a lot of pages. It's like, you know, Atlanta Burns is one line, but there wasn't a lot of pages. <laughs> but what we wanted to get across was- was very big and and for budget and time a lot of things had to be truncated and it works really well i mean i never talk about being proud of my work but i'm really proud of this episode and so we had this day and a half and it involved a good chunk of our peaches of our main cast plus rosie o'donnell plus a bunch of extras and background who all had to go through the works with hair makeup and costumes yeah uh, we had light cues, we had a musical number, and it was a set, but it wasn't a real set. It was the production designer turned the basement of our stages into the set. So we had heart ceilings. So it's not, I mean, it was only part of the stage in the sense that I would drive to work and I could go to it. But in terms of the ease of shooting a stage, none of it was there. It might as have been a real location because we were just shooting in a basement. And so one of the best ideas that I put to use on this and I am grateful to the director and the producers to just give me the go ahead and trust that it would work was to shoot all of it with two steady cams working simultaneously. And oh, wow. um since then I've heard other DPs or other operators, and I think sometimes when operators say this is from a place of ego, that you can't do two steady cams working at once. And I'm like actually a, you can't. In a confined, confined space, space no with less. multiple actors. Yeah. And it worked really, really well. And I, like, I always think, like, where does, I mean, you follow me on Twitter now. Like, one of the things I muse about is, like, where does great cinematography come from? Because I feel like most cinematographers can do a lot of things, but a lot of us aren't doing great cinematography. And I think it comes to trust that you just need to have 
whoever hired you trust you and that your crew mm-hmm. trusts you and that doesn't happen all the time. So, oh, um, I mean, ask everyone. It just does not happen no, all the I, time. I, I, I believe you. And also, you know, like the conversation comes up sometimes why DPs get the reputation for being, uh, uh, shall we say, grumpy pants. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. Is, is that like, I always think of it as like you're painting a painting and you're like really focused on it. And every five minutes someone comes up and goes, how much longer? <laughs> hey, do you need green? Hey, when are you going to be done? <laughs> Like, it's like hard to, you know, like you're, what you're doing is so, this is why I do this podcast. Yeah. What you're doing to me is it's voodoo. I, I don't understand it. I don't understand what, like, what you're talking about when yeah. it works, when it works beautifully. Yeah. What makes that come together? Yeah. It just, it makes such a difference when someone just says, this is my vision. And the deep, even, even though I'm not shooting film anymore, I would still love to, but even though I'm not shooting film anymore, there's still something about the cinematographer being in control of the magic box and people being nervous about only one person really having control over what happens in the magic box. And when everyone just said, okay, this is what we want to do. We trust you. And then you actually get to do something incredible given the time and the budget. And so, like I said, our, I made a day and a half. I had both Steadicams working and they're both really great Steadicam operators. So it was like they both just are amazing and they're elegant and their focus pullers are really strong. So I just had a really great team. So it wasn't it wasn't a concern that I had to watch over anything. And I was like, okay, we like will describe the director described, you know, he had his blocking, whatever, and he was open to massaging the marks in order for us to get the whole scene done in our limited amount of time and I'd have one operator take over the start of a scene and then stay at the table and then the second operator laying away to pull in this case pull Abby from that same table and bring her to the bar and I was lit for all of that my gaffer job was just fantastic in like with our lighting cues and whatever and so it felt a little hectic in the moment but the amount of coverage we got that felt seamless it would be impossible without having two steadicam operators because i mean most of the times when we have one steadicam operator they either have to do everything or they do the majority of it and then the b cam will sneak in and get a piece of coverage and the flow feels different when someone comes in with a dolly to do a piece of coverage or handheld or whatever it just feels different and here it was Steadicam to Steadicam, and there's a wonderful scene where the couples are dancing, and we wanted to capture multiple couples dancing with the cameras going around, and we just did not have the time. It was only one Steadicam to give everyone their due respect of having a camera going around them and circling Mm -hmm. them and giving them several takes and several different lens sizes and not feel hurried. And because I had two Steadicam operators, one operator took one section of the room, the other operator took the other section of the room, circled different dancers, changed lens, circled again. And uh, we just got a ton of footage in a very short period of time. And then I think all of that actually was all done in one day. And then day two was the police raid. And we might've had a little steady cam there. And then we went handheld. And then of course, both operators were working, but yeah, it, it absolutely can work. If you have faith and you trust both your operators and you have a plan on how to make it work. So I, I love that scene immensely. And I'm really just adore my crew. Who's uh, Who are the Steadicam operators? Uh, Janice Min and Michael Craven. 
and they were just fantastic. So I know you can't talk very much about it, but you are, uh, as we're speaking now, you're working on a new sci-fi series. Yes, called are Beacon you, what are you? What are you allowed to say? Uh, what am I allowed to say about Beacon 23? Um, that it's amazing, that it's really fun to shoot something that is completely different from everything I've ever done. Um, my last two shows were period pieces, plus, um, you know, doing the second unit for Rap Shit. So this takes place in outer space and there's a lot of, a lot of psychological horror involved there's a lot of visual effects which is fun because i really wanted to do more visual effects there's a ton of stunt work i feel like there's a part there's permanently a v on the slate which is really great because i always said i want to do more visual effects like working with visual effects artists and so there's a ton of that there's a ton of stunts i love doing stunts so much you know we all joke there's a lot of pew, pew, there's a lot of that going on, <laughs> uh, you know, it's, it's just, it's fun. And it's really enjoyable to do a show that not only was it nice, it's nice to do something that's science fiction and futuristic, which I've never done before. It's just sort of nice on my heart to just do something that's kind of fun. <laughs> yeah. Inventive. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's very inventive and like, you know, props people are always showing you some prop that they made that you know helps someone go white speed or something you're like okay sure all right it's 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 like you're back you're back in the sandbox you're five years old back in the sandbox and you have a really great stick and the stick is called a blah 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 laser and and that's what we're doing so i'm doing that for three months that i can definitely say and it's been a lot of fun that's awesome I think that's a great place to stop too but i i want you to go make some more horror movies so we can talk about thank you i agree Uh, Thank you so much for coming on the show. For everybody uh, who has Amazon Prime, check out A League of Their Own right now. It's really great. You shot, I believe, episodes, what is it, four, six, and eight? Correct. But watch the whole show. It's a great show. Before we go, is there any place people can uh, find you or your work online? You can certainly find me in, on Instagram and Twitter, DP, And mm-hmm. uh, same for my website if you want to see some of my work is sabeldp.com. Excellent. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show and uh, we'll have you back when we can talk more about your sci-fi show. Wonderful. Thank you. All right. So that was Sibel Martin. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Sibel. Can't wait to see the sci-fi series that uh, you're working on right now. That'll be badass, I think. And can't wait to see what you do next. And now, short ends. All right, Ben, it is short end time. Uh, what is your obsession this week? What are you what are you all about? I, I wouldn't say it's necessarily an obsession for me this week, but it's I like to highlight craft based YouTube channels that I find myself returning to over and over again. And there's an amazing one that has a great YouTube component, also just has a great standalone website. It's called Texture Labs. And you can find them at texturelabs.org. It's a guy named Brady who's a graphic designer. And what he does is he goes through Photoshop and After Effects tutorials. And it's a lot of stuff about uh, titling or using tools like After Effects and Photoshop to kind of create interesting looks, images. He's somebody who does title design for trailers and stuff like that. So he knows of what he speaks. He walks you through it pretty simply. He shows you the setup. And on texturelabs.org, 
Pittsburgh, they actually have all these cool textures you can just download. There's tons of them. And they come in really handy, you know, and some of them are kind of like grungy, like if you wanted to make something look like a photocopy or a, a punk rock poster or something like that. Or even if you're doing typesetting and you want your type to be grungy in the background, not to be grungy, but you don't want to like download a font that has that baked in. I don't know about you. Whenever I'm looking at like a title design, if the same letter appears in the title twice, my eye goes right to like, let's say there's two lowercase a's in the title. If the grungy stuff is in the exact same place on both, I'm like, ah, you lazy fuck. You just used some out-of-the-box font. Papyrus! Papyrus! <laughs> um, <laughs> but, like, you know, yeah, you just went on, on uh, defont.com and downloaded a grungy-looking font. Whereas, if you know what you're doing, you could take, uh, you know, again, a pretty basic font like Arial Black or something, lay a texture over it, and if there's two lowercase a's, the grungy stuff won't be in the same place on both. And there's so many interesting techniques that you can use in these programs to do just really phenomenal title design. And his tutorials kind of walk you through it pretty clearly and kind of give you the tools to kind of play around with it on your own. Sometimes I, I just watched one recently about a blend mode in Photoshop that it's one of the ones that I, it's different. Uh, mode, which I've probably never used in my life. And he explains why you would use it. And uh, it's a little techie nerdy stuff but i think for anyone who's editing a project or putting a project together you have had to do title design i appreciate your attention to detail uh with the fonts and titles and i i don't mean to mock you with the uh, reference to the saturday night live short papyrus which i'm going to ask alana cody to put a link in the show notes now because i'm just oh i I didn't know that there was one you you didn't know what i was saying with papyrus ryan gosling did this saturday night live sketch called papyrus and now I will share that with you and you can have the moment of reflection here. You are the Ryan Gosling in, in your short end this week. You are obsessed with, with a, uh, with a font and effect and a thing. And it's like, it will not be the first nor the last time that someone has said, I am the Ryan Gosling in a certain situation. (laughs) Every time you take off your shirt, you're the Ryan Gosling in in that situation. People are always like, Ben, will you stop being a, fucking gosling sorry man i am potty mouth tonight sorry about that <laughs> sorry <laughs> audience uh and anyway so i'm glad that you found a cool resource now you get to enjoy the uh, ryan gosling short when when our host raps are, are done today so well and i'll and i'll share the comic sans song with you that you'll, you'll <laughs> do, like you, that do you have a joke about helvetica too you want to you want to get into this no, I don't. I don't have any good uh, Helvetica or, or uh, Aerial Black or uh, you know, Times Wingdings. You got no, no Times New Roman. Zaps, dingbats. No, nothing. I got nothing. Anyway, Elias. So, what is your short end this week? Oh wow, this, this is going to be uh, contentious for you because my short end this week is what we do in the shadows. And you and I spoke last week, and you told me that that's not exactly the show for you. That you don't watch that show, and I don't know what it is that that rubs you about that show because it is my catnip. I am loving this show, and I am catching up on old episodes that I that I missed from a few weeks ago. And I swear, I think the show has never been better. And yes, it's a little bit of a shtick, but the shtick completely works for me. And I am not alone. I was in uh, a Trader Joe's the other day and overheard the crew of the Trader Joe's all talking about how much they enjoyed a, a recent episode of what we did in the shadows. And I got to give props. I, I'm, not, I'm not trying to yuck anyone's yum here. I like I, I, uh, I get yum. why people like it. It's just not my thing. I, and, and it should be on paper. It sounds exactly like something I would love. Taika Waititi, whose work I adore, 
doing kind of a horror comedy thing. And when I hear the concept, it's a little bit like Seinfeld to me. Someone will tell me what happened in an episode of Seinfeld and I'll think it's hilarious. But if I ever try and watch Seinfeld, I just can't. It, it just it just never works. I don't know why it doesn't work for me. I, obviously, it works for most other people. So, you know, I'm not I'm not saying it's bad. I'm saying it's just not for me. It's, it's just not for you. I understand. OK. Uh, and, and you're wrong. So I'm going to give I'm going to, you know, uh, I'm going to uh, give this a thumbs up to your uh, to your thumbs sideways down. So uh, I I love it. And pro- props to DJ Stipson, who uh, has shot most of uh, it looks like the show so far. And uh, it was nominated for a, a primetime Emmy. And uh, yeah, it's Sweet. it's it's really uh, it's really been uh, so much fun. And if you've got Hulu and I got to give props to Hulu, because I think, you know, we, we, were, we were talking earlier in the close focus about like a curated experience and what sort of experience that we're going to expect from streaming services. I think the better the curation, the better that they understand who their viewers are. I, I fully expect that in the next five years, the Netflixes and the HBOs out there and the Apple TVs are going to have some sort of AI personality sort of uh, host, if you will, that's really going to be like, you know, delivering and selling you on all of the different things that they, they offer. Netflix tried this years ago and failed spectacularly with a, a sort of disembodied voice they had called uh, Max. I don't know if you're remember this but I, I don't and that sounds horrifying it, it was really it was really kind of a a failed one size fits all curation sort of algorithm so it was like oh you gave a couple of these things thumbs up so you might like this i must have tried it 50 times and the only thing that came out of it that was any good that i actually really liked was luther and i gotta say it was great that you know a stopped clock is still right twice a day it was it was right on with luther and i, I highly recommend that series but everything else they served up to me was like, what the F? What's this? What? I mean, but if, that's if, the future. If they have an AI cur- curating it, I want it to be a real AI that I can design using like mid-journey. So it can be like a screaming face made out of hands that's saying like, maybe you would enjoy the, you know, the good place. And it'd be like, oh, yeah. Thank you, screaming face made out of hands. Yes. And I think for other people, it might be like, you know, uh, Wilfred Brimley. It's going to be, you know, Don Knotts. It's going to be some sort of diabetes. It's going to be somebody who, you know, it could be someone beloved who, you know, it could be James Dean. You don't know. Someone's going to be your personal Sherpa who's going to, you know, shepherd you through your trials of trying to pick out what it is you're going to watch. I, I guess I'm down for that. But, uh, hey there, young you know, young fella. Let me let me show you about Pepperidge Farm. <laughs> ongoing argument that I have with Kay's Alatracci, our beloved Kay's Alatracci, is like the degree to which we're going to have AI doing everything. And I'm like, all we have to do now is train AI to watch and enjoy movies. And then AI can make movies that only AI watches. Uh, AI movies will be terrible. But I do think that like uh, Spotify has gotten very, very good with their algorithm about predicting what, you know, if you like this playlist, you might also like these other things. Uh, I expect that that is going to continue with movies and personalities and all kinds of stuff. So the computer systems will be pretty good at guessing what it is that that you're going to be interested in. And uh, they're going to be able to have that information without you having to upvote it or downvote it just by the fact that they're going to see what it is that you're watching and decide from there. I'm in big trouble because I, I have a, a tendency to put on something I'm only mildly interested in then fall asleep. Yeah, you know, eclectic taste will still work. I have a feeling that they're going to get much better at, at, you know, those with a really eclectic taste and saying, hey, you know, you might want to watch this even though uh, it's not your usual sort of thing. It's going to take a while. It's going to take years 
But I do think that this is coming. I think that turns out we're more predictable than we think we are. That's all I will say about it. But anyway, what we do in the shadows. That's fair. Uh, really, really, really like it. Really, really uh, enjoying it. Taika Waititi. I, I mean, the guy is. I, I don't know if you watch Reservation Dogs. Everything this guy touches, I feel like turns to gold. It's it's so so good. He's he's pretty amazing. And you know, like I I actually tweeted about this recently. Like Jojo Rabbit only came out what like two years ago, and I feel like we don't talk about it very much. And Jojo Rabbit is genius. And uh, Taika Waititi was obviously already on my radar when I saw that movie, but I feel like him directing a movie in which he himself plays Hitler kind of thrust him into the spotlight in a way, you know, that I wasn't ready for. And like when I I was watching the Lightyear movie with my son and I caught his voice and I'm like, I think that's Taika Waititi. And sure enough, Taika Waititi doing voice acting in the in the Lightyear movie. Like, guys, he's awesome. I'm I'm very impressed with his just kind of boundless talent. Yeah, uh, agreed. All right, Ben, before we thank some people, where can people find you? You can find me at benrock.com. Go to benrock.com. You can find my social media links. You can check out my reel. Friend me wherever uh, friends uh, go online to be friendly with one another. Ilya, where can people find you? Uh, you can find me over at Hot Red Cameras, hotredcameras.com, and, and most of the social medias, although I'm fairly poor about checking some of these Instagram messages I've gotten lately. If you've been messaging me there, my apologies. Uh, I'm, I'm a little tardy on that. I'll, I'll try to get better in the future. Man, I get a lot of Instagram messages explaining to me how I can get rich with cryptocurrency. <laughs> yes, I get one or two of those and people asking me if I'll try their generic sunglasses or, you know, Oof. bikinis or whatever the hell they are they're offering. Yeah. Crazy. Anyway, uh, well, Ilya, let's go ahead and thank our intrepid producer, Alana Cody, who is, uh, as always, producing up a storm, got more interviews coming out really soon, and uh, just keeps us on a schedule. If you like listening to this show once a week, you have Alana Cody to thank for that, because by golly, when it was just the two of us, it'd be like once every three months. Yeah, it was like, hey, should we be doing something about this tonight? Uh, It's too late. And now now we got someone cracking the whip. Cracking the whip. (laughs) That's good Awesome. We should go ahead and thank Ben Katz, uh, Ben Katz, who edits every episode and uh, manages to make you and me not sound like the total idiots that we are. Thanks, Ben Katz. And uh, last but not least, we, we got to thank Katie Zalatracci, who created every scrap of music uh, that you heard on this podcast. Check out his website, musicbykays.com. Yeah, for, for God's sakes, will somebody just email Kays on his website and say, uh, we like your music? You don't have to do anything. It doesn't cost you anything. Just just go to his website, musicbykays, K-A-Y-S.com, and hit the contact button or whatever, and, uh, and just say, hey, we enjoyed your music on the Cinematography Podcast. He's not going to charge you any money. Just just do that. Just, just be nice. We recently found out literally no one's ever reached out to him from the podcast. We've been doing this thing for like eight years. You'll be glad you did. If you reach out to him, you'll be glad you did. It's very unlikely you will regret reaching out to case he's one of the most talented people i've ever known all right ben i think that just about does it for this week there's nothing left to say we're out of stuff to say so uh (laughs) we'll see you next week thanks for listening this has been the cinematography podcast presented by hot rod cameras find your next camera lens or accessory on the web at hotrodcameras.com Don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes and connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening.